So I want to welcome you this morning on this first Sunday after Easter Sunday. You know, on Easter Sunday, of course, the entire focus, and rightly so, is on what God has done for us in Christ, that He was crucified for our sins, He was raised for our justification, that everything that we believe as Christians, everything that matters most, Paul called it in his letters to the Corinthians, of first importance is the resurrection of Jesus. But there are more than eternal implications to the resurrection of Jesus for Christians. Now, of course, those are first and most and best, that we are forgiven and that we are justified, that we can stand before God free and clear, not because we earned it or deserve it, but because Jesus Christ earned it for us, for our sake. But in this life, while we await that final resurrection of ourselves, when we await, while we await the return of Christ, uh, perhaps even in our time, we know this to be true. Consider Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Not only do we have hope in eternal life, but we have hope in this life, even in the face of suffering or difficulty, hardship, opposition, or persecution. And we know that our hope in Christ will not be in vain. And as the way Paul wrote it, we know we will not be put to shame. There will never be a time where we will regret being faithful to Jesus. There will never be a time where we'll be standing in eternity thinking he wasn't worth it. That will never come. We'll never be put to shame. The one decision we'll always be glad that we made is we surrender our lives to Christ. Our faithfulness to Jesus will be celebrated forever and ever and ever, for he is worth it. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we gather and worship, we thank you for the promises that we have in Christ. Father, not just, though they are immense, immeasurable, incalculable, not just eternal promises, but promises today that over every part of our lives, your good providence holds sway. You are sovereign and you are good. And though we face difficulties or hardships, though in fact, as your people, we may face persecution, you are worth it. So Father, I pray that we would be faithful. And I pray as we gather today, you would renew us you would refill us with your Holy Spirit. Father, we would celebrate who we are in you and what we have because of you and where we're headed to be with you. And Lord, in all this, you'd be well pleased. So Lord, meet with us here in a special way, I pray, that sort of way that we can't deny, sort of way that we don't miss, sort of way that, that changes us, Father, so that we leave here more like Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Open up your Bible to Acts chapter 5. You can track with me, and you may want to keep your finger there, because we're going to look back at it a couple of times and reference a couple of spots in it as we read. This is Acts chapter 5, verse 17. And I want to challenge you today with something hard. I want, to, I want you to think hard and deeply and honestly with yourself today, and 
not that this is different than any other Sunday, but not go through the motions. You know, let's just let's really consider what God would say to us through this text, what the Holy Spirit would reveal to us through it, and how we need to challenge ourselves with it today. This is Acts chapter 5, starting verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the sin of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, the Judas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail." But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So he took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray about that this morning. Father, I pray that today we would be rightly challenged by your Holy Spirit, confronted, convicted, motivated, empowered, Lord, to be your witnesses without without ceasing, 
publicly, privately. Lord, that we would consistently, lovingly, humbly represent King Jesus. Lord, I pray that these events would make sense to us, but more than just understanding the history of what took place in the early church, Father, we would get a sense of what you're calling us to do right now in the modern church, the contemporary church. And not just some sort of collective notion, which is easy to put responsibility off on somebody else. But what do you want us to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want each of us to be and do? I pray you'd make that so clear. And that we would respond with worshipful obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to get a sense of this from the beginning of the text. You know, here's the big picture. Obviously, the church is just exploding with growth. And so many are being saved, men and women. And it is more than raised the ire of the religious leadership. Um, It has caused their jealous hatred now to be the response. And God is doing amazing things. I mean, the gospel is penetrating, and it's penetrating those people who had been Jewish religious people who were antagonistic towards Jesus as Messiah. It was going out to Gentiles who had never heard the name of Jesus, who had many different pagan religions. There were no barriers that were not being overcome or not being blown away. This is emphatically, and I want you to see this and sense this, this is sort of a a precursor, a side point to the big point I want to make today, but this is what spiritual warfare looks like. Now, it's just a reminder, okay, as we delve into the text, that when we talk about things like making Christ known and being everyday missionaries and sharing Jesus with our friends or our neighbors or standing up for our faith, these are not just human undertakings. You and I have to be be fully aware that we have a spiritual enemy that wants to defeat the work of Christ everywhere, where you live, in your home, with your family, where you work, in your classroom, in your neighborhood, through your witness. He is always at work. He never takes off attacking the image and the glory and the gospel of Christ. He's always battling. And you and I, that causes us not to be fearful or to be hesitant or to withdraw or to be complacent. It ought to call us to prayer. God, we cannot do this without you. That's why the Great Commission promises his presence and his authority. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. This is spiritual warfare. And look how it's playing out in this text. If you go back just a few verses, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, look where we were just a couple of weeks ago before Easter. In verse 12, many signs and wonders are being done. More than ever, Scripture says, believers were added, multitudes of men and women. Evidence of the work of God happening. Sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits were all healed. Demons being cast out, people being healed of disease. All these evidences that were giving validation to the apostles and validation to the gospel message and establishing the authority of Christ over all things. This was happening, but Satan always pushes back. And look at the pushback of Satan. And then the religious leadership filled with jealousy. We see in verse 17. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. This was a reaction engineered by our spiritual enemy. You're going to do that? You're going to speak up for Christ? You're going to continue pushing this message? It's going to cost you something. You're going to pay a penalty for this. You're going to suffer for this. Are you willing You willing to pay for this? You willing to suffer for this? And they put them in prison. Now, I'm not going to give much commentary to the miraculous here other than just simply recounting it because you and I don't get to generate the miraculous works of God. 
Now, we don't earn them. We don't deserve them. We don't stimulate them. God, by His grace, gives them. And this is one of those many examples. So they put them in prison. And this is just a beautiful statement. So let's just take a minute to, to acknowledge it and, and honor God in it. It's an awesome miracle of God. He puts them in prison, locks it down, and then God releases them. And he doesn't break through the prison walls. He doesn't do it in any natural ways. They are released. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And as the angel brings them out, I'll handle the deliverance. I'll handle the supernatural parts. I'll handle the behind-the-scenes parts. But here's the part that falls on you. Obedience. Faithfulness. Allegiance. You trust me with the things you can't do. You trust me with the breaking down of barriers. You trust me with the changing of hearts. You trust me with the deliverance from evil. You be faithful. You be obedient. You have allegiance to me. And listen to what he said to them. And I love this statement. This is just so gripped to me. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. All the words of this life. I wonder today, are you about this life? You know, sometimes I'll be, I'll be following some NBA action. And you'll see a couple of guys will maybe get into a little bit of a tussle. Maybe there's a rough foul. And one of the other guys will bow up real quick on the guy who fouled him hard. And then quickly, the guy who fouled him hard backs down, doesn't want the fight. You know, it does, doesn't want the conflict. Backs off quick, and you'll see somebody tweet something. A picture of this event, maybe he's turning his back on him, and he'll say something like this. He ain't about that life. He's fake tough. You know, he's got the tattoos, and he's all about the street, and he's all about the talk, but when it comes to, when it comes to throwing some blows, he ain't about that life. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It marks somebody who's shown to be fake, shown to be a fraud, shown to not be legit. They want to come off as something, but when the tension gets turned up, when the pressure is high, when the real conflict is there, you realize... They ain't about that. What about me and you? That angel, by commission from God, told the apostles this. It says, go and tell them, speak to the people all the words of this life. What about you? This life. He didn't simply, here's a formula, go tell them this. Here's... Here's a message I want you to share. He said, no, you tell them all about this life. You, you tell them what it means to be a follower of King Jesus. You, you share with them what it means to have your life changed and your sins forgiven and, and a reason to, to live and to die. You go tell them about the life that you've got. You tell them how he's changed you, what's different in your heart, what's different in your values and your priorities, what's different in your future. You go tell them about this life that you're about. Go stand up for this life. And I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about how you and I can be faithful to the life in the face of opposition, difficulty, hardship, imprisonment. How can you be faithful to the life? Well, the first thing I think is pretty clear, and it's just something you and I have to settle. And you settle it maybe now in a time of relative peace or ease, where there's not much conflict, not much cost, not much struggle. But at some point or another, all of us are going to have to settle the issue of allegiance. What am I truly allegiant to? Who has my allegiance? When the heat gets turned up, when the cost is great, to what or whom will I be faithful? 
Will it be to my comfort? Will it be to my ease? Will it be to my culture? Or will it be to Christ? Do I see Him as King? Not in some nebulous, hyper-spiritualized, totally impractical way, but in a real life every single day. Because He's King of my life, how can I not be allegiant to Him? You've got to settle the issue of allegiance. I think allegiance is a good way of describing what real biblical faith is. It's not just believing that something is true. It's not being just religious in some non-threatening way that requires little love me. It's saying, Jesus, you're king, and I'll follow you, whatever it takes, wherever it leads, even if I'm the only one. I'm going to be faithful to you. See, there's going to come a time in your life where you're going to be faced with a choice like they were. You're going to obey God, or you're going to obey man. You're going to follow the, the will of man, or you're going to follow the will of God. There, there's going to come a time as a Christian, and, and I, would, I would suggest to you that it's probably already here in ways we may or may not be realizing. There's going to come a time where the whole narrative in our culture is going to shift, and as a Christian, you're now the one wearing the black hat. You're the bad guy in the story now. You're not the cultural good guy anymore. You're the bad guy now. You're the intolerant one or the bigoted one. You're the unloving one or the harsh one. You're the judging one or the condemning one. You're the dangerous one or the threatening one. This is where our culture has led us. So in those times where it may not be so blunt yet, so in your face, but nonetheless pervasive, and constant, the challenge will be, you going to do what God wants you to do here? Or are you going to do what culture and society and government and your school or your social media wants you to do? What are you going to do here? Are you going to be allegiant to me? Because see, these men had already settled this issue. Now I would suggest to you the reason they settled this issue so clearly is they knew what Jesus had done for them. Jesus wasn't just idea or concept. Most people are not willing to bleed and die for ideas or concepts. They're really not. We'll argue them, we'll debate them, but I don't want to die over that. I can tell you what I think about certain subjects. I mean, I will argue with you all day long who's the greatest basketball player who's ever lived, but I'm not going to die over that. But someone that you love, who has loved you like Christ has loved you, someone that gave himself for your sins and you saw raised, someone that has transformed your life, this is no longer just my religion. This is no longer just my beliefs. These aren't just my values. This is my king and he's alive. There's going to come a time where your allegiance is going to be tested. Just know it. There's going to come a time where it's going to be tested. And this, this story is so profound and yet so simple. Let's see, if these, let's see if these guys are legit. Let's turn up the heat on them. Let, let's see what happens. Let, let's see what they'll take. We'll imprison them. We'll see if that will silence them. Then simply fearing the crowds, we'll, we'll beat them and just tell them to stop. Let's see if that will be enough. Let's see what it takes to stop them. And the question is always going to be, and we're going to see this, you're going to feel this more and more and more. This is the pressure. I promise you, you're going to be feeling more and more. Is this really my life? Is this really my life? 
I mean, do I really stand on this? Is this all-encompassing for me? Is this the one thing that most defines me, who I am in Christ and what Christ has done for me? Because the world's going to test that allegiance, you can be sure. And listen, you know this to be true if you've been in church very, very long at all. The world has a different king. The world has a different king, the prince of the power of the air, the Bible says, who rules in this world. And he will fight at every turn anyone who professes allegiance to King Jesus. That's why you and I have to be prepared for persecution. Now, I've shared some of these ideas with you before, so I'll not belabor the points, but I want you to at least hear them. I want you to be as convinced of these promises in Scripture as others that you are, the hopeful ones, the joy-filled ones, as well as the daunting ones. Persecution is promised for the godly, not possible for the godly. It's promised for the godly. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a very important three-letter word there, all. And there's a conviction and a challenge in that same passage. So I don't feel any persecution. No one's ever challenged me about what I believe or how I live or what I think or what I say or what I do. Why do you think that is? Why do you suppose that is? If you've taken a stand for something that's godly, you're going to face some pushback. If you go against the cultural narratives today, there's going to be pushback. If you take a stand on what's right and what's true, there's going to be pushback. And pushback soon becomes persecution. And it says all who choose to live a godly life will face it. So just be prepared for it. It's going to come. Jesus said it this way in John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Whoa, 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 I did not sign up for that. There's something innate to really just about all of us, and I'm leaving just the scantest out in that statement. There's something innate to just about all of us that really wants people to like us. And I don't know if you could call this a movement within Christianity or just human nature being expressed in religious life, but so much of Christianity seems to be bent on this idea. We can make ourselves acceptable. We can make people like us. We can, we can explain to people, hey, we're not that kind of Christian. I, I'm not like those guys. Hey, I'm just like you, except, you know, I got Jesus, and we can make ourselves as likable as possible. We have this, I don't know, this quest like Don Quixote, that we're going to be likable Christians, and we're going to be different than what Jesus says. No, Jesus says, if you are faithful to me, if you are like me, if you remind the world of me, because you're not of this world, they're going to hate you like they hated me. There's going to be opposition. It's promised. But you also have to understand that the persecution that's promised is purposeful to God's plan. It's not outside of the providence of God. It's not God looking back and saying, man, I hope you guys can hang on through this. I wish I could help you. I wish there was something I could do through this, but you guys are just going to have to weather the storm. Hang in there. Hang in there. I'm coming back soon. Don't let go of the rope. It's not what he says. In fact, the scriptures make it clear that through this persecution, certain plans of God are taking place that wouldn't take place otherwise. And that's why the disciples were able to take honor in what they did, 
to know that God is doing this for a purpose. And if God chooses to use me and causes me to be the one who suffers or the one who faces difficulty or hardship, I'm going to glory in that. And I'm going to know it's going to be worth it. And I'm going to count an honor that I got to suffer with Christ. But it's purposeful to his plan. Do you remember when Stephen the deacon, well, we haven't gotten there yet. Sorry, you can't remember. You haven't read it yet. It's Acts chapter 8. We're getting there. I'm going to give away my Acts 8 sermon. When Stephen the deacon was stoned, simply for telling the truth, for talking about that life. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8, you got Paul there, who will soon become the man talking about that life. But right now, he's everything against that life. And Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, and Paul approved of this stoning. And there arose on that day after that, listen to this, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Great persecution came, and what happened? They got scattered. But as they scattered, they took the gospel with them. Now the command of God to them had already been, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus made that promise. You will be my witnesses. He didn't tell them how. He says, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But they stayed in Jerusalem until persecution scattered them. But as they scattered, the gospel went. And Christian communities were established all over everywhere. It's purposeful. But here's something you also need to understand. And this hits right where you and I sit today. Persecution is purifying for the church. It's purifying for the church. We're seeing it happen already, and we're going to see it happen in much more drastic measure in the days to come. As a pure persecution comes against the church, whether it's socially beginning at the beginning, and then financial or opportunistic, and, and then maybe even legal, maybe it's maybe even cost you legally, and it is in some places already, decisions that will cost you as a business person or as a community leader or as a teacher to be faithful to Christ, to be faithful to the life. Understand as persecution wells up, you're going to see the church scatter. And some of those who scatter won't return. They'll just leave it. The social cost will be too high. The personal cost will be too high. The financial cost will be too high. The relational cost will be too high. They don't want to give up anything for this. They've been sold something of Christianity that's all to your benefit, all to your gain, all the time, with no cost ever, no challenge. Pick it up when you want it. Put it down if it doesn't serve you. Give it a shot. Try it. See if it works for you. And when the pressure arises, people are going to leave it. And we're seeing that already. Jesus said this in John chapter 15. And this is right before he spoke of the persecution that would come for them because they were in Christ. He says, I'm the true vine and my father's a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Part of the way I believe that he prunes his people is through persecution. Is this really your life? Is this really what you want? Remember when I called you to follow me, Jesus might say, I told you, if anyone would come after me, he has to deny himself. 
That means it won't always be what you want it to be or how you want it to be. It won't always serve your immediate needs, wishes, or desires. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. Whoa. You have to take up your cross. We make that just a euphemism today. I saw somebody the other day that had a cross tattoo, which those are rare. You don't see many of those. I'm being sarcastic. But this thing was huge. I mean, this was, this was on a person's back, and it was, it was big back, big cross, big. And I, this message was already in my head, and I didn't have this conversation, but I kind of wanted to. What's that mean to you? This is not a statement about tattoos. Some of you are going to go home and say, see, I told you, this pastor doesn't even want you to get a tattoo. That's a different conversation. It's about the life. And I started thinking, as I was looking at this person across, it was me and Charlie were having ice cream, and I'm looking at this person sitting there with this gigantic back tattoo. And so what would happen if a time comes in our culture that even to have a mark of identity with Christ would be illegal? would bring about immediate persecution. Can you imagine all the people backtracking and say, that's not what that's about. No, no, that's not what that means. No, 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 that, that's not who I am. No, I'm not that kind of Christian. No, I'm not even a Christian at all. I just thought it was a cool tap. When the cost rises. You see, Jesus said this in Mark chapter 13. Speaking of future persecution, he said, be on your guard. They'll deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever's given to you in that hour. Sort of like the angel gave those men in prison what to say in that hour. Go tell them about that life. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit, brother, will deliver brother over to death. You mean, you mean there are going to be traitors among us? There'll be false converts among us? There'll be people who said they were one of us, but they're not? They're against us? Yeah. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father is child. The children will rise against parents, have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures till the end will be saved. reading everybody's Easter tweets and messages and things, you know, happy resurrection day and, you know, egg hunts and bunnies and family pictures and beach trips and all those kind of things. And same day as I'm reading and seeing all these pictures, I, I get this article from Nigeria about a radical Islamic group that took the opportunity on Easter morning to ravage churches and murder worshipers. Now, that's not the kind of news we get much in American media, certainly not the sort of thing that people care much about. And I thought about, you know, a full room that we had here on Easter Sunday. Probably our best attendance in a long time, I don't know. And I just started thinking things like this. How many of us would gather if we knew there was even the scant possibility that somebody might come in and just light this place up with gunfire. You know, what, at what point would we say, I'm not about that life? It's interesting in this passage that a wise Pharisee emerges named Gamaliel. And what Gamaliel says is just so spot on. 
I mean, I, I want you to hear this. It's just, it's just so spot on. Here's what he said. He said, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And he had good case studies on this. He says, guys, listen, here's this new movement, right? This thing is all fresh. And these guys are all hyped up. They're all excited about it. You know, this is all brand new and it's all very thrilling. It's all very countercultural. And, and, you know, they're all worked up about it. But let's see how this thing plays out. Let's see what happens here. You know, this isn't the first religious movement, and these aren't the first devoted disciples. And he cites two other groups. He says, you remember them? You know, those two leaders, they, they had these little bands, and the number of followers that they had initially was very similar to the number of followers that Jesus had right after Pentecost, right before Peter's message where thousands got saved. I mean, it's just in the hundreds. 400 for one, Jesus had 500 witnesses. He said, you remember them? And then the leader... Two times, the leader got killed, and what happened to the followers? They just fizzled. They were gone. What happened to the movements? Gone. It's over. So he said basically something like this. Let's give it time. Let's give this time, and then let's look for proof, and let's see if these people are real. Let's give this some time, and then let's look for proof to see that this is real. I suspect that sort of thinking is one of the reasons why a number of churches are very careful with those whom they baptize and how quickly they'll baptize them. I'm glad you've made this decision. I'm glad you're excited about it. I'm glad you had this emotional moment. Let's give this some time. Let's see if this is real. Because what you do in your baptism is you're making a commitment to be wed to Christ. It's the covenant ceremony of Christianity. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. But the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a new life. Let's see if this is real. Let's see if this is legit. Let's see if they're really about this life. And I thought of this simple equation, and it applied then. And this is what Gamaliel said. Let's not do anything. Let's not touch them, even though they did. They followed his wisdom to some degree. It applied then, but it surely applies now. You take cost, what I'm willing to pay, cost, plus time, the, the amount of time I'm willing to pay it, and that measures commitment. What am I willing to pay? How long am I willing to pay it? And that'll show me where my commitment is. What are you willing to pay to be a follower of Christ? And how long will you be willing to pay that? Because somebody wise in the wisdom of this world says, that's the equation. Let's see if they're legit. Let's turn up the heat. Let's exact some cost. Let's see if they've got some skin in the game, and when they do, what they'll do now. Because until then, you don't really know. Until then, you don't really know. Because in Christianity, it's only about some prayer that you prayed, so you get to go to heaven when you die. You have no skin in that game. And I'm not saying the same thing as saying, hey, you've got to work for this, earn this. I'm simply saying, what's this worth to you? I mean, there's a reason why we see record numbers of people, or unprecedented, I should say, because I don't know if anyone's kept these records. Unprecedented before now, it seems, numbers of people deconstructing their faith, deconverting, leaving the faith. The leaders of the early church, like John, says they went out from us because they were not of us. Now, they looked like it, 
They said some of the things that we say and believe some of the things that we believe, but when it cost something to be faithful, they were gone. So let's give it some proof. Here's a third way that you and I have to be faithful. Don't always expect miraculous deliverance, but always commit to joyful endurance. I don't want to minimize the miracle there, okay? I, I think that miracle is awesome. It's one of the neatest stories in Acts that, you know, the angel came, told him to leave, they left, and, but everything was still locked. And the, and the guards didn't even know it. The guards are like still guarding. They're just guarding empty jail cells now. And they come to look for them. They say, hey, it's all locked. Oh, but they're not in there. Oh, my bad. And they wondered. They were, I love sometimes the minimalist language of Acts. They were perplexed. Yeah, no kidding. They wondered what might become of this. Some of them probably wondered if they were going to have heads the next day for this. I don't want to minimize the miracle, but you and I, because we see this throughout history, we see this in the Old Testament. You know, one of the great sermons in Acts is, which one of the prophets did our fathers not kill? Which one? Jesus kept saying again and again about persecution. Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it again and again. It seems very clear that normative Christianity involves persecution. So we shouldn't always expect miraculous deliverance. We shouldn't say, well, that's the model. If anything happens to me, I'm just going to get, you know, it's going to be Daniel in the lion's den, man. It's going to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm, I'm good to go. No, those are, the, those are the outlier stories. And even these men who were delivered from persecution, almost all of them would eventually face martyrdom. But even in persecution... They had joyful endurance. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Man, that's a whole sermon by itself. These guys, these guys just took a beating. They'd been in jail. They're under great legal strain and pressure and difficulty now and cultural strain and difficulty. They're clearly outliers now at odds with their community that they were part of before. And they took a, a beating, which that, that surely was severe. I mean, they didn't, they didn't dole these out lightly. And they left there going, yes! Can you imagine their high five? How sweet was that? Hey, let me show you mine. Rejoicing that they were able to suffer dishonor for the name. And here's the, here's the big moment here. Commit to joyful endurance and don't quit. Listen to what it says. Don't quit every day. They were told don't do this anymore, but every day they didn't cease teaching and preaching that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, or that the Christ is Jesus. Every day they kept saying, no, 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 here's the good news. The Messiah that we've all been waiting for is Jesus. It doesn't matter what you say or what you do. It doesn't matter how much you hate me. You're not going to make me stop loving you enough to tell you the good news. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King, and I'm not going to quit with that. So let me wrap up with these three big reasons here not to quit. First one is this, Gamaliel's question that he asked. You know, if this thing is real, if this is, under, if this is an undertaking of man, it will fail, but if it's of God, you won't be able to overthrow them. That question's already been answered. Okay, the Gamaliel test, that one's already been answered. It's been answered with 2,000 years of church history. It's been answered through the resurrection of Jesus. It's been answered through the martyrdom of the saints. It's been answered through the faithfulness of the church. It's been answered through the persecuted blood of millions. It's already been answered. You can't stop it. 
Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. We know the answer to the Gamaliel question. He didn't know it yet, but we do. It's already been answered. Number two, you don't quit because Jesus is king. How I mean, how are you going to quit? He's king. He's not legend. He's not moral example. He's not great ethical teacher in the past. He's living king. So we keep following him, knowing that one day we'll see him, that the king is going to return. And we don't quit if this is you. You don't quit because this is your life. You don't quit because this is your life. What, what else am I going to do? This isn't my preference. This isn't my politics. This isn't my sports team. This is my life. How am I going to quit this? How are you going to push me off of this? How am I going to stop being this? How am I going to stop trusting in the one who has saved me? I can't. That's, that's my life. So you keep being all that Jesus called you to be. Even if that runs counter to the culture you live in. And you keep saying all the things that Jesus wants you to say. Even if the culture doesn't want you doesn't want to hear it. You keep wearing the black hat. Even as you lovingly, humbly, courageously, resolutely keep repping Jesus. This is what we do. This is just what we do. Read an interesting little story, and I'll leave you with this. You guys may be familiar with Sir Ernest Shackleton. He planned a a grand expedition at the turn of the 20th century to cross the continent of Antarctica from one coast to the other via the South Pole. Now, what was so bold about this, maybe even audacious in this, is only 10 people in history at that point had ever stood at the South Pole. Only 10. And five of those died on the return trip. So Shackleton planned this grand expedition. He was looking to build a team that would do this with him. What sort of people want to undertake a challenge like that? And he placed an ad in newspapers that read this simply. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness. Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in event of success. Over 5,000 men responded to the ad wanting to go. And I assure you, as they did, they were not asking about retirement plans. They were not asking about fringe benefits. These men took up the challenge to go. And I want to make this clear to us all this morning. I'm afraid most, if not all of us in this room, at some point in our lives, have been victims of church bait and switch. Church bait and switch. And the bait-and-switch invitation will not serve the church well in the days that we're in and the days that are to come. The sort of idea that coming to Christ only means believing certain things to be true that are easy enough to believe as long as they are not costly to you. Praying something that someone told you to pray that you merely repeat. Holding out some hope of something you're not even sure is real in the future that just in case, and, and I hate this plea that I see people making, I'm sure with good motives on social media, what have I to lose if this is not true? Pray this prayer. Maybe if it is true, you'll get to go to heaven too. What nonsense. That's myth. That's fairy tale. 
No, I'm calling you to the life. I'm calling you to the life that's countercultural to the lives that most people that you're going to encounter for the rest of your life are going to live. I'm calling you to a, to a full surrender to a king who's at war with the king of this world and all of its values, priorities, principles, aims, goals, all those things. This is not the life I know that some of you signed up for. But see, Jesus calls us to something great, not something easy. Something that requires action that's not, that's not passive. Something that might, in the short run, cost us everything. But in the long run, which can only be measured in eternity, is infinitely worth it. So that's what I'm calling you to. Why did I read you a little Shackleford ad? Because I'm calling you to that sort of Christianity. I'm not calling you to simply believe something to be true or pray some prayer that you only have to understand or mean. I'm calling you to surrender your life and take up this life. Be about this life. Be about a life of faithfulness to King Jesus who loves you so much that he died on the cross for your sins, was raised again for your justification if you believe in him, if you trust in him, if you become his follower. And I'm challenging you, challenging you as a Christian to live that life, whatever the cost. So there will be no question what your true identity is or where your true allegiance is. I'm calling you to take up something worth living and dying for. Will you answer that call? Will you pray with me? Father, as I said, I believe that a number of us are going to be soon challenged one way or another. It'll be some relationship that we have, some in our own family. It'll be something in our business. It'll be something where we go to school. It'll be something we post or say, and we're going to be challenged to see, are we really about this life? How much do we mean this? How serious are we about this? How true are we to King Jesus? God, may we be faithful. May we be true. God, you called us to something amazing, something wonderful, something eternally glorious. And whatever cost we should exact in following you, not to earn you, but because we're faithful to you, the slain and risen and coming again, King, may we recognize it's worth it. And I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Apostle Paul said this, talking about his own suffering, which he suffered greatly. Suffered greatly. Listen to his assessment of suffering. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see that? I'll carry his death so I can manifest his life. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Through our suffering, maybe God might bring about life for someone. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And I pray that will be true of us.